0: Just go to Ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC Terms and Conditions Supply. Welcome to an excerpt of the Stacky Benjamin Show. I'm Joe Salcihai. We had a fantastic discussion recently with Jamie Wise from Buzz Indexes and Phil Back from ACSI funds. We talked about the future of active investing, you know, the type of investing where instead of indexing, traditionally you've hired a manager and they use some data, but in the end, they end up making the decisions themselves. A human makes the decisions. Jamie and Phil talk about how change is a coming. Let's listen in. And I'm so excited about uh, this segment. I've been waiting all week to interview these guys. Uh, Coming down to the basement right now, first of all, he speaks often about ETFs and how they're created. He formerly was the head of ETF listings at the New York Stock Exchange, but today we're interested in his fund, the American Customer Satisfaction Core Alpha ETF, ticker symbol ACSI. He's Ann Arbor-based. Welcome, Phil, back to the basement. How are you, man?
1: Good, thanks, Joe. How are you?
0: Well, I'm good until I said that you're from Ann Arbor, and then I think I might have to disown you a little bit. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well luckily we've got a lot of Michigan State representation on our team as well.
0: That is good. You told me that earlier and and tell you
1: you've got what three or four Michigan State people. That's right. And one of whom who is a professor right now in the grad school. So he's uh, somebody on our research team. We've got a former soccer star from Michigan State. So we also have a guy from Grand Valley. So we're across the state of Michigan. <laughs> we are uh, Switzerland. You got That's right. You got it all covered. You redeemed yourself there,
0: Phil. So thank goodness. And also joining us from Buzz Index is the guy we talk to once a month trading under the ticker symbol BUZ. We're happy to have him back. Mr. Jamie Wise joins us. Welcome back, man.
2: Great to be back, Joe. Happy to be here. And I understand film being be Switzerland, but of course we're Canadian. So we're all That's going right. to get along just fine. <laughs>
0: That's right. Because Canadians, you people just get along with everybody, don't you? That is our mantra. Yeah. I think it's
2: uh, written there on the
0: flag somewhere. a <laughs> Kindler, gentler country, right? Well, <laughs> let's jump into this, guys, because you have two very different funds with different approaches, but you're both breaking down some of the traditional barriers with ETFs. And I want to start, Phil, with you Let's talk a little bit about your ETF. When did you realize that there was a correlation between stock prices and customer satisfaction, and that was something that should be packaged as an exchange-traded fund?
1: Well, the way this thing started, actually, was I had to run a few errands. I had to pick up a whole bunch of stuff from my kid's camp one year, and there was a Kmart very close to my house and a Target a little further away. And I wanted to go to Target. I didn't have a lot of time. The Kmart was close, so I thought, you know, how bad could it be? And I went to Kmart with a list that I had to buy bug spray and bathing suits and backpacks. And I'm standing there and the store is filthy and there's no one at the cash register. There's no prices on items. And it was just a miserable experience. And I was waiting in line endlessly for the, you know, at the only cash register that was actually open, (laughs) thinking to myself, how do I bet on Target against Kmart? Because essentially they're the same store, but a very different customer experience. Then I started thinking about, well, how do I bet on JetBlue instead of Spirit Air or Shake Shack instead of McDonald's? And I started looking for the data. It turned out that the world's expert and the world's authority on quantifying customer satisfaction was not far at all from where I live, right in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I went down there, and of course, it turned out that they were managing successfully two hedge funds based on this data for for many years with exceptional returns. Um, and, and what we wanted to do is we we wanted to create an investable index with the data that we thought was more of a retail-based product that could generally more or less match the risk levels of a broad cap-weighted S&P 500 index and deliver it in an ETF to investors. We're
0: going to turn this into a roundtable discussion in a minute, but I want to follow up just on that for a second, Phil. How do you measure customer satisfaction in the index? Customer
1: satisfaction is it's, that's the whole trick here—is how do you quantify customer satisfaction? Right, right? right. I might have had a bad experience at Kmart, but there might be other people that you know for them the uh, the fact that it's not so clean, but it's low cost is a, is a trade off they're willing to take. I mean, certainly I brought up Spirit Air. Uh, there are people who love Spirit Air because to spend an extra hundred dollars on a flight just to get a bag of peanuts doesn't make sense to them. So we have a proprietary econometric model which is fully patented. We survey over a hundred thousand customers, and I say customers and not consumers, because we care very much about what the actual customers that transact with the business have to say about their experiences with that business. And we're trying to we're trying to weed out the outside opinions so we can get a better sense of. What customer retention will look like for companies going forward. So we partnered with the American customer satisfaction index, who's the, uh, who, who I referenced before is the world's authority on quantifying customer satisfaction. And we use their data in our index to manage our funds. Got it. And then do you rebalance
0: it or have new names in there monthly or quarterly, or how often does it change?
1: Yeah, we rebalance on a quarterly basis. Um, we uh, we have constraints based on sector level and the individual security allocation level. So you know we're trying to generally match a traditional large cap fund. We rebalance on a quarterly basis. Not a tremendous amount of turnover in the names because uh, in order to be included in the index, we have to have a large enough sample of customers to be able to, to be able to measure. That limits us to about 160 stocks that we can use. But the weighting of those stocks within the portfolio is based entirely on what their current level of customer satisfaction is. Gotcha. Jamie, let's turn to you for a second and dig into
0: the buzz index for just a moment. When did you figure out that following the wisdom of crowds was a good idea?
2: Well, Joe, it started about four years ago for us when we saw some of that academic research, early academic research that was talking about mining online content for broad-based discussions around stocks. And could you take some insight from that conversation with respect to sentiment and the the prospects for those stocks from an investment point of view? Uh, It was certainly interesting to us in a little bit early days. But a couple of years ago, the conversation online really exploded, and and we got excited when we could see that we could measure a consistent level of conversation across all broad-based U.S. equities, larger-cap U.S. equities, and then start to identify changing shifts in sentiment around those stocks and really get behind the ones that had the most positive momentum behind them.
0: What channels are your primary channels that you guys focus on at Buzz. Yeah, you know the the biggest
2: volume of data certainly comes from Twitter and okay. and Twitter most people use Twitter as a launching point to um, longer form content so if you're uh, a financial journalist or a blogger or just someone in you know who keeps a, a daily tally on what they're doing in the markets oftentimes you'll present that to the world through Twitter and then link it back to your own specific site so so Twitter is a big one for us but then there's a whole host of um really financial focused websites where investors and traders gather to talk about stocks all day long, we look at uh, newspapers or online uh, financial posts where people are commenting on stories from journalists and, and media outlets. Anywhere where people are talking about stocks, we're listening.
0: And do d- does the criteria of the of the person matter? So if I've got you know uh, Joshua Brown from Reform Broker versus Billy Bob who just uh, changed out my 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 muffler down at the muffler shop, does that matter? You're laughing because you think Billy Bob's opinion doesn't count. And
2: and we're here to tell you that enough Billy Bob's opinions count if you can aggregate them. So so much in the way that Phil was talking about their approach, which is going out and polling 100,000 customers, you know, we're trying to listen to millions of people that are talking about stocks online. And it doesn't matter how sophisticated you are. uh, And I'm going to put sophistication in quotes here as an investor or whether you're an analyst on CNBC with a big microphone in front of you. If you're in independently offering your perspective on a stock's prospects, what you're doing personally in your investment portfolio, where you're putting your dollars to work. If you can measure enough people, you have enough breadth to that conversation, enough diversity within that conversation. The overall average collective view is really powerful information to know
0: well thank you both of you guys for digging in a little bit about what you do just so people can see kind of where ETFs are headed because as you know it's it's not just SPY the diamond the Q's like people buying these very basic things anymore I mean the 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 things that you guys are doing are, I think, are incredibly innovative and a lot different than what people have seen from exchange-traded funds in the past. Phil, do you pay attention to the size of the company that's in in your ETF? Uh,
1: no, no, we don't. Well, we we generally try to match, you know, the parameters, the average market cap of a large cap fund. But, you know, for us, it's really about having a sample size of customers that we can get a good read on and that we, you know, that we have comfort in being able to, you know, look at the view and the direction of of the company. When you talk about the size of the underlying company, typically you're, you know, you're referencing the market capitalization. Market capitalization is an entirely backwards looking indicator, right? Because you're looking at what the, you know, the value of the shares and the shares outstanding are and, and the value of the shares is entirely driven off the historical earnings and, and the future earnings projections, but all based on data that's out there in the balance sheet. And It's not, there's nothing forward looking about that. There's nothing that's a, a leading indicator about that. So what we're trying to do and what Jamie's trying to do is really find different ways of looking at the market, different ways of looking at the world where we think we can get out in front of those numbers and use the data as a leading indicator.
0: Well, and that's my next question, Phil, for you is then, do you think that the Morningstar style box, right? The large cap value, large cap growth, large cap blend, mid cap value, growth blend, yada, yada, yada. Do you think that that's dead? Is that dying? Are we seeing now that we can kind of throw that away as an average investor out there in America?
1: No, definitely not. Traditional asset allocation, and modern portfolio theory are are great. I mean, they've done a lot of good for a lot of people. It's mathematics. It works. The thing is, though, right now the the, the secret's out. Right, a, a balanced portfolio of low-cost Vanguard index funds is is now the baseline. Whereas, you know, just ten years ago, that might have you know given you an advantage for for your clients or for yourself versus someone else who's buying expensive, actively managed traditional mutual funds. Now. We're seeing that low-cost index funds and and traditional asset allocation, that's the baseline that you're competing against. I can go online and I can Google a portfolio of, you know, 60-40 low-cost funds and have it at my fingertips in a matter of seconds. So if you want to do better than the baseline, if you want to do better for your clients or for yourself, you have to have an informational advantage. You have to have some systematic process that you can incorporate into modern portfolio theory to try to have an edge. And, you know, hopefully one that's uh, an evergreen strategy that should work, you know, as well 20 years from now as it'll work today, that should work in all market environments. And nothing's always going to work, but at least that the expectation is that you'll be able to do better than that baseline because you have this informational advantage that you're using.
0: Yeah. Jamie, do you think the Morningstar style box is dead?
2: (sighs) Dead is a, a strong word, but I am very comfortable saying it's dated what we're living in right now is a world that is awash with data. There is so much information out there and taking that you know, traditional approach of whether it's just historical performance or balance sheet analysis to try and make investment decisions or rate your portfolio is really the old, old style way of thinking. It's, it's just not relevant anymore. We are inundated with amounts of data. We are all on social platforms. We are all sharing our experiences with brands, with products, our investment criteria. And if you're not able to take advantage of some of that data, whether you're a portfolio manager for one of those mutual funds and you're trying to analyze Target versus Kmart, sure, you can go into a store yourself. You can have a meeting with the CEO, but you can also now amass massive amounts of data to validate and complement that decision and really give you the insight you need to make the complete picture whole.
0: So you agree here that with, uh, you agree with Phil that data's your leg up. It has to be. Absolutely. If you're not
2: already thinking about how you're benefiting from the massive amount of data that's out there that can help you in your investment decisions, you're still living in that old structure. And those things that may have worked in the past when data was limited to everyone can't work anymore going forward because the sophisticated investors are certainly making use of that data.
0: I know that you guys can't tell individual investors, you know, what to do with their portfolio and Obviously, you don't know the people listening to this show, so I understand that you can't give individual advice, but I'm wondering where you see your portfolios. Do you see your portfolio as a 5 to 10% holding as a piece of it? So to Phil's point, you're using asset allocation to do as well as everybody else, but then you're tweaking it by using your strategies or another another strategy that that gives you maybe a leg up or is this now the new hull of the ship where you're comfortable telling people that you know maybe 40% of your portfolio belongs with us Jamie
2: Yeah, I don't think it's our place to, um, you know, indicate to your listeners how much of their portfolio should be in any one security. The question they have to make for themselves is, do we want equity exposure in our portfolios? And if the answer is yes, and we want domestic equity exposure, which a lot of people have, it's what's the best way to capture that? I think the great thing about the growth of ETFs and smart beta ETFs is you can really think in a rules-based approach, how you want to structure holding equities in your portfolio. Do you want to own them based on market cap? Do you want to own them based off of some other insights, whether it's growth, value, dividend, sentiment, customer satisfaction, whatever factor you believe in will have the best predictive nature in determining forward returns. You can really access now through the ETF landscape in a simple, convenient rules-based approach. And that's that's something new that all investors should be taking care of, uh, taking advantage of.
0: Yeah. Phil, do you agree with that? If, if, if somebody at a dinner party tells you that 60% of their portfolio is in ACSI, are you telling them that's fantastic or that they might want to back that down?
1: No, I mean, very similar to Jamie, where, you know, I, I couldn't tell somebody whether for, for their personal situation it's appropriate or not that they should be in large cap equity. But to the extent that they're investing in large cap U.S. equity, uh, we feel comfortable that our ETF, that the ACSI ETF is appropriate for 100 percent of that exposure. It's not a satellite position. We believe that, that you know, value in companies based off the likelihood of of repeat customers and the likelihood of you know, otherwise customers leaving or you know a company being able to amass customers is significantly more valid than any of the traditional the traditional metrics, including smart beta. Now, if you combine it with other factors, it is an optimizing factor. So, if you want to combine other smart beta approaches or even market capitalization weighted with customer satisfaction weighted, you will see some optimization in your portfolio. But we feel very comfortable as long as somebody you know has the risk tolerance and the interest in investing in. Uh, large cap U.S. equity with them allocating 100% of their position to the CTF if it was appropriate for their personal situation.
0: Gotcha. And you know, it's funny, Jamie and you both, you talked about, you talked about smart beta fill. Jamie talked about rules-based investing. We've seen for a long time the statistics on actively managed mutual funds, right? And how supposedly during Dow markets or during times that, that you know, certain times they might be able to tweak some returns out. And yet the way a lot of mutual fund managers are paid It seems like they're unable to beat the index. They end up, you know, barely trailing the index because of the fact that that they don't get flogged if they just lose by a little bit instead of try to win. Do you see, Phil, uh, your rules-based approach or smart beta type of approach, do you see that kind of replacing the actively managed funds? Or will there still be room in a portfolio for actively managed approaches?
1: I think the definition of actively managed is going to shift over time. I think both of these funds are really what active management is gonna look like in the future where there's a rules-based approach and there's a process by which you expect more often than not, not always, not in every uh, short-term market cycle, but over a longer period of time, You know, the longer the sample, the more certain the outcome, that you're gonna expect some outperformance. But by using a rules-based approach, You eliminate the possibility of somebody uh, a portfolio manager being a cowboy or taking unnecessary risk and you eliminate a lot of those a lot of those risks that were traditionally associated with you know active management of old um these types of funds i mean this, this is what hedge funds have been looking like for many years what's really new and different here is is that we've taken the acsi data and jamie's taken the big data and we've packaged it in the efficient vehicle of an etf so now investors can not only access these strategies they can do it in a very efficient low-cost vehicle. And it's you know a democratization, if you will, of the strategies that have been traditionally, you know, thought of as more hedge fund type strategies only for accredited investors. And I think what you're saying,
0: Phil, then I, I know very clearly because I know what the rules are around this ETF, I know exactly what game I'm getting into, where with a manager, I might not know about his stomach flu and the fact that he picked the wrong thing on that
1: day. Yeah, that's right. And the subjectivity that you know the active managers used to have. Is that something that's a, a positive or a negative? I think in the past it was considered a positive. You know, you, you'd look at the fund manager, you know, you would trust them with their decisions, but the performance of actively managed funds over you know the last 30 years or more has, has really shown that that subjectivity is, is not a good thing. It's not something you want. you want to eliminate it as much as possible yeah. by using a rules-based approach. You can have a very good sense of exactly what your risk parameters are, what your expectations are, you know, based on historical data over different market cycles and over different time periods and time horizons, and you can have a much more honest assessment of what your return expectations should be relative to the benchmark. I completely agree with Phil here. What we're
2: talking about is is style drift, right? And, And if you have a portfolio manager for a mutual fund, he's one human being and he is susceptible to all the same flaws that we all are as individuals in that we can overreact, underreact, change our opinion to fit the facts or change our opinion to fit the scenario that's playing out in the current market. When you add all those things up together, that can lead and typically does, as we've seen over 30 years, like Phil just said, underperformance. And and you don't want that. You don't want to expose yourself to that risk within your portfolio. And that's where rules-based approaches really can make a lot of sense because you can really be, you know, laser in and target in on what exactly you're trying to accomplish in, in your portfolio. So why rely on one person's judgment, which can be flawed or susceptible to those risks on a day-by-day basis when you can benefit from so much greater insight from either thousands of people's views or you know their perceptions on customer satisfaction, whatever the case may be.
0: You know, we saw last fall Eaton Vance uh, roll out. I think it was this last fall. Jeez, it might've been 18 months ago now. Rolling out the fact that they were working on an actively managed ETF that they were going to, going to try to put management and ETF in the same spot. Based on what you said, Phil, I think that that you're insinuating that approaches like that might be dead on arrival.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that solves a problem for Eaton Vance, right? Because Eaton Vance wants to offer their same strategies in an ETF and you know take advantage of all the advantage of all the structural advantages of an ETF relative to a mutual fund. But they didn't want to give away their secret sauce. They didn't want to be transparent about what they were doing. And they wanted to hold on to some of that uh, proprietary nature of their strategies. Well, that might solve a problem for Eaton Vance, but that doesn't solve a problem for any investor. I've never heard an investor say, gee, you know what? I, I want to give up transparency in my, <laughs> in my portfolio. I, I trust the portfolio manager so much that I don't want him to tell me what he's doing because then he doesn't have to tell the market what he's doing. That's a trade-off that I've never heard an investor Myself, I've never heard an investor ask for. So, you know, maybe Eaton Vance does have clients for whom it's appropriate. And there's certainly nothing wrong with the idea of, you know, using the benefits of an ETF in an investment that would otherwise be non transparent anyway in a different structure. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But the question is, who are they solving a problem for? And I don't see that market as much as I see a market for people who are looking for different, new, and different ways to access the capital markets in a way that really do better than the baseline of low cost cap weighted funds. Yeah, kind of-
2: this is some investment advice that I'm comfortable giving your listeners. Beware of the transparency argument that there's some magical secret sauce that a portfolio manager has and they don't want to show you the portfolio for fear of giving up that recipe. All of that is a red herring to protect fees and and for the most part people see through it. There should be no problem showing investors what is in your portfolio. We're all invested in very liquid large cap US equities. Those things are not going to be moved by us showing investors what's in the portfolio. Beware that transparency argument.
0: It's so funny, Jamie. The what, five or six months that we've uh, we've talked on Stacky Benjamins. I think you're reading my mind because you just answered the question I was going to ask you. So I think that's a <laughs> phenomenal place to leave it. Great last word, and I think we'll start with you, Jamie. Here at the end, uh, tell us how people can learn more about the Buzz Index. Sure. Head on over to
2: buzzindexes.com. There's lots of content there. Uh, We podcast, of course. We have blogs, white papers, research reports, and really an AI industry watch list there. That's a great resource for people just to stay abreast of what's happening with advancements in these technologies and how they're being applied to finance. So certainly you can learn more about the index and the BUZ listed ETF, but you can also just uh, stay current on all the things that are happening around this industry as people transition to a more 21st century approach to investing.
0: Phil, thanks a ton for joining us. How do people find out more about ACSI Funds?
1: Uh, thank you, Joe. Uh, ACSIFunds.com, ACSIETF.com. And if you really want to dig in on some of the data that we have on customer satisfaction, take a look at ACSIMatters.com. Uh, and again, the fund ticker is ACSI. Thank you, Joe.
0: Awesome. And you know what, everybody? I'll have links to all those if you're out walking the dog or driving to or from work on our show notes at stackybenjamins.com jamie phil thanks a ton for playing i appreciate it great to be here thanks joe thanks again you'll find more on phil back at acsi funds find out more about the buzz index at stackybenjamins.com forward slash buzz that's b-u-z-z hit our show notes page at stackybenjamins.com if you'd like more on the Stacky Benjamin show, you'll find us every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Joe Salsinger. Well, Stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine